I've read his book, You Inc., a heap of times, and there's one little thing that always jumps out at me in that, and it's find the gift. Every, every situation presents you with a gift, and you've got to find the gift. This is Property Investory where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset and strategies. I'm Tyrone Shum and in this episode, we're speaking with Drew Schofields, founder of Forefront Accountants, a business that advises property investors and developers on issues such as taxation and business strategy. We discover how he sold his first property for 50% more than he paid for, traveled to over 24 countries before 30 and so much more. Schofield is owner of a business called Forefront Accountants that acts as accountants and also advises clients on business strategy. Predominantly, we're business advisors and property investor slash property developer um, accountants. I mean, that's who we deal with day to day. We offer um, uh, taxation, accountancy, business strategy advice around those kind of areas. Um, yeah, I mean, day to day, that's what I do. I meet with clients, I talk with clients, we work on strategy, um, we talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it. I guess my role or my purpose in life is to be two things to clients, one a conduit. So I like to be the, I guess, the, the person that clients pass through to get to that need or that person they really want to talk to be it a solicitor or um, you know, anybody in particular, really, it doesn't really matter what they do. I sort of got a pretty pretty thick black book with lots of different people doing lots of different things and I'm, I seem to be pretty good at hearing people's needs, letting that trigger and then passing that information on. And then the second thing I, I guess I like to do and I like to be is a, a sounding board um, and offer advice to clients and I, I really like to put myself in their shoes and say, okay, well, Drew, if this was you, what would you do? And, and that, that's kind of my philosophy on providing advice. Our clients range from uh, people buying their first um, property that they're going to uh, probably renovate cosmetically and add some value and then sell for hopefully a profit through to clients doing their first um, major renovation or substantial renovation as uh, the ATO calls it, where they're really changing the characteristic of the home and turning it into a new home through to small subdivisions, um, larger subdivisions, and then uh, substantial um, land development with some clients moving into, you know, 20, 30, 50 lot developments and above. So our clients range from, at the moment, from, yeah, I've, I was talking to a client this morning about they're looking at buying their very first property to uh, renovate and then sell and make a profit through to another client I was talking to yesterday who's got a $20 million development and sort of everything in between. So we're pretty well versed in that whole, you know, what the taxation and the strategy, GST, income tax, structuring, joint ventures, how all those things come together. In order to cater to such a wide range of clients, Schofield stays on top of things by undertaking research on the internet and going to seminars. Some of it is a little bit you know, like eating cardboard, but it's essential. You need to keep, you know, people say, what, what, how would you describe yourself? I'd say sharp. And that's how you got to be. You got to be sharp. You got to know what it is. Now, I don't like to just rattle off things to clients on the phone. I'll always, or on an email, I'll always give clients my opinion, but I'll always premise it with, but just let me check on that. Just let me make, go and do the research just to be 100% certain that 
what I'm saying is the most current, up-to-date thing, um, you know, process, etc. But, I mean, when you're doing it all the day, every day, like we are, and that's sort of literally what we are doing with clients and, and all the different ranges of investment and development and property you can do, you, you sort of you start to pick up one or two things. He then goes on to talk about why he chose the name Forefront, giving us a little background story behind it and how it reflects his business. Forefront came along, interesting, we almost became Schofield and Associates, but I spoke to a, um, believe it or not, a solicitor who sometimes aren't known for their creativities. Apologies to all the solicitors out there, but, um, <laughs> but this particular mate of mine said, look, great name, Drew, but what do you do? Who are you? I don't care. What do you do? Put something, what you, you know, put what you're doing there, have a story. You've got to have a narrative. And he's a bit of a marketing sort of guy, this um, uh, solicitor friend of mine. So, yeah, the word, I, I tossed around a heap of different names and I ended up with Forefront. I, I do like a pun, anyone that knows me well. Um, so I've put the word, the number four and then the, the letters F-R-O-N-T after the end. Um, I guess uh, essentially to, to the story is to tell clients that we're at the forefront of your affairs. You know, that's where we want to be. We want to be at the forefront with you, guiding you, helping you. You know, our tagline is your key partner in business. Um, I mean, that's interchangeable with your key partner in anything. But I mean, m- most most clients that are doing investing and uh, developing in property, I mean, whether they appreciate it or realize it or not, they're, they're probably acting in a business-like manner a lot of the time. So, you know, the fundamentals ring true, whether you're a butcher, baker, a candlestick maker or doing a, a 10 lot subdivision, you're still a business. So, but that's where Forefront comes from, I guess. We like to be the, we like to think we're at the forefront of clients' affairs and, you know, things in general where we can help and add value. Having grown up in central Queensland, Schofield had a great childhood and upbringing. However, as he grew older, he was eager to leave his hometown. Um, I grew up in a place called Rockhampton in central Queensland, which most people know because it's on the weather map on sunrise, um, which we're all very proud about in Rockhampton. Um, but yeah, that's where I grew up. I went to um, French Full State Primary School up there um, and, you know, great, great primary school, state school. Then I went to a Catholic um, co-ed um, college up there called Emmaus College, which and again, another another really good school. Um, but yeah, loved loved Rocky, loved growing up. I always say Rockhampton's a good place to be from, not necessarily a good place to be. So apologies to anyone from Rockhampton listening, but um, people, uh, friends of mine are, that have moved say the same thing. It, it was a great childhood and a great place to grow up, I thought. I moved out of uh, Rockhampton, I guess, as soon as practicable, not because I didn't like it. I just wanted to sort of go and you know, explore other places. We, uh, my now wife and I moved to Brisbane when we were 21. Um, having both never lived out of home, we had to get a lease. We had to work out how to use public transport because that's just not a, not a cultural thing in Rocky using public transport and all those different things. And then we went, uh, we went um, overseas together for two years. And I think between us, we've been to 24, 25 countries around the world. So you... Um, you sort of come back to Rocky at Christmas and those kind of places and it's really nice for a couple of days but after that you sort of not that I'm terribly cosmopolitan but there are certain things you miss that a big city or well, not that Brisbane's a huge city but a bigger city can offer I guess. After leaving Rockhampton he and his wife decided to base themselves in the UK from where they travel to many other countries. We moved to London 
um, ostensibly, and that's where we lived and based ourselves. Um, my wife's a teacher, um, I'm an accountant, obviously, uh, and we both took up our professions there. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's such a great place, London, it's such a hub. I mean, it's easy to go to Paris for the weekend or Germany for the weekend or the Czech Republic for three or four days or, you know, grab a cheap flight to Greece or Spain or, you know, go and see Monaco or go to Ireland, go to Scotland, you know, I mean, it's all just there. Morocco is a place I've been to in Northern Africa, you know. It's easy to get to all these places and, you know, it's once you sort of go to one or two places, you really get a travel bug. It's really good to meet different and interesting people that have different upbringings, I guess, and different sort of cultural backgrounds and doing different things. But I guess you realise that we're all fairly the same at the end of the day. We've all got hopes and dreams that aren't too probably too different to each other. It's just we might just live in a different place and eat different food, I guess. But no, I really enjoy travel. After finishing high school, Schofield applied for university and he did one year full-time of his degree. Then for the rest of the time, he was working part-time in the accounting space. When I finished um, high school, I went, I applied for, I only applied for one thing at university and that was to Bachelor of uh, Business or Bachelor of Commerce majoring in accounting. Uh, I did one year full-time. I ended up getting in the top 5% of my um, degree or my, sorry, my course that year. So, I'm a member of the Golden Key um, International Society. I think it's called something like that anyway. Um, it's probably not that exclusive. It just sounds good. I don't know. But uh, the letter sounded pretty good. So, I paid my paid my one-time fee of $80 and I've, I still get the newsletter today. So, that's going on, I don't know. 17, 16 years now, whatever it is. Um, I did one year full-time and then I sort of got to the end of the year and uh, not because of, but mates of mine had done trades and they were probably earning money and I sort of got to the end of my uni, had a really good time, did quite well, worked hard, played hard, but thought there's got to be a bit more than this. I mean, I'm just sitting here doing university studies and whilst that's enjoyable and I'm you know, working part-time and taking on work experience jobs, I thought, well, I might as well try and get a real job. So, um, people won't like this, but I applied for a job and I had one interview and I got it. <laughs> so, <laughs> literally, it was in the paper. If people out there remember what when you used to go into the paper and apply for a job and send a letter, well, I did that and I got an interview and that was with Christmas and Bowling in Rockhampton um, and, yeah, loved my, I think I was there two or three years and um, really uh, two years, two and a half years and really enjoyed it. Learned a hell of a lot there from uh, Dale and Joe. Really good, good times. As a junior accountant, he was quite ambitious and was eventually allowed to take on more responsibility. Yeah, I was probably a little bit um, maybe overconfident. I think I was there six months and I said, when's my first client interview? And they told me to calm down, but I, I just kept badgering them until I got to talk to somebody and about something and I'm I think from memory they gave me an individual tax return interview and I must have done okay with that. And then the um, my, my wife got a job. She's a teacher and she finished it. She did a uni full-time, whereas I did my first year full-time and then I did the rest of my degree part-time. She got offered a job in Brisbane, so we moved down here. So it was after my studies, yeah. yeah. So I was, I, was in, uh, I was working as an accountant in Rockhampton for about two years and I moved down here and worked for about another two and a half years and then... Um, probably about two years actually it was and then we went overseas. I turned I turned 24 in the air <laughs> flying to Thailand, <laughs> getting a very late flight. <laughs> <laughs> 
Schofield managed then to land his London job when his employees in Brisbane went to an international conference. Another funny sort of thing, I, I so the, my employees in um, Brisbane, Hog Lawson, uh, great firm, great guys, still talk to them to this day, really, really good chaps. Uh, they were part of a, an international group and they, they'd they gone to a, one of the, the conferences this, this particular international accounting group offered and they were talking to one of the um, the directors of the a firm in London and they said, oh, we've got a young bloke coming over, do you want to give him a job? And that's, again, I just got the job. <laughs> so I went there, I landed in, in um, London with a job, I, I sort of gave myself a couple of weeks to enjoy the place and then I pretty much jumped straight back into work and I think I was there uh, six months and they were talking about offering me to sponsor me and do my furthest my chartered accountant studies and those sort of things and I was like oh well sorry guys I'm just sort of here to have a good time (laughs) and they were pretty disappointed they thought I was there to really put down roots. Schofield and his wife ultimately decided especially since they plan to have children to come back to Australia instead of staying in the UK. We only had a two-year work visa. Um, we'd both been offered opportunities to, to stay in the in the United Kingdom in England and work or stay in London and work for our um, employers. My wife was working for the, um, I can't remember what they're called, but the equivalent of Brisbane Catholic Education in London. So, you know, the, the London Archdiocese or whatever it's called, I'm not sure, but um, we both got offered opportunities, but we sort of decided that, look, if we stay here, It'll be nice, but it'll be very hard to leave and we'll probably end up at some point having children. Do we really want to raise children in here or near family and support? So we kind of, which is a really mature thing, I guess, to think about when you're 25, 26, but we did that. What is more, Schofield much preferred the weather in Australia. We decided to come back and I, I mean, I always wanted to be a partner in an accounting firm and whilst I probably could have done that in the UK eventually, because um, I've seen other people I've worked beside at the particular firm I was at, sort of elevated to that point now, and I believe I probably would have got there because uh, I would have put the work in. Um, I wanted to come back to Brisbane and yeah, live here and be in Australia and not, you know, know what it's like to to um, see sunshine more than five times a year. It's a great place, London, but I mean, from October through to February, it's pretty tough going. <laughs> it's the sun whimpers its way up at about nine thirty, then it retreats promptly at about 1.30 <laughs> so, and it's cold. If you're going to travel there, go there in April, May, June. I mean, they're the best times. Even July's not too bad. By the time August comes around, it's starting to, August, September, it's starting to get cool, which we've probably all seen the cricketers on the ashes at the moment with their jumpers on playing a, you know, a, a vigorous, you know, sort of aerobic type sport with jumpers on it doesn't make sense but when you're there you'll realize how cold it is (laughs) you know a top of 15 or 14 or 12 some days you know you think geez that's cool once he came back to brisbane he got back into work quite easily and after going to another firm to progress in his career he came to a fork in the road i actually came back to my old job essentially albeit slightly um with the the people i was working for when i um uh, left Australia or left Brisbane, um, albeit at a maybe a slightly higher, I guess, station. I was a senior accountant by that point. Um, I sort of ran that as far as I could um, and then I got to a point where I thought, well, I really want to make the um, the leap to being a, a manager now and I want to manage people and manage a, a team and, you know, clients and sort of, you know, to run my own race a little bit, you know, that sort of career progression, which I've always, I've always been an ambitious person. So 
I've always pushed myself. So I set a goal and that I could see that wasn't going to happen at the firm I was at. So I um, had to make the tough decision to, to leave that firm and go to another firm. And I was the inaugural manager at the firm that I worked at here in Brisbane. I did that for about two years um, and I sort of got to the point and said, okay, well, the fork in the road's here. I either become a, a partner here or I start my own firm. So I wrote down a date um, that I was prepared to accept with myself in consultation, obviously, with my wife. I didn't just go and do something reckless, but I, I think I got to January. Not that I'm a big um, news resolution person. I thought I think I like to set goals and objectives more, but I sort of got to that point and said, well, if I don't have a if I'm not any more advanced than I think I should be toward being a partner by 31st of October 2013, I'll resign. And that's essentially what I did. And I started Forefront on Monday, the 4th of November 2013. And my wife wasn't working and I had a six-week-old. <laughs> so I really, I had no plan B, Tyrone. I think that's back yourself into the corner and back yourself, I guess. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about that story. Probably sounds a bit more cavalier than what it really was. I'd planned things fairly well, as well as you can, but I mean, you still sort of take a punt. I had no clients either, so that was always interesting. Um, I've always been a pretty good networker. I've always enjoyed networking and meeting people and getting to understand their story and, you know, hearing for um, opportunities where I might be able to help them. So I'm not about helping myself, I'm about helping them. I think if you can. If you can listen to someone, understand their story, hear where their pain point is and find someone that can help that, I think you go a long way to developing a good relationship and occasionally you'll be the person that can help that and that's where you'll be. Coming up after the break, we'll delve into how Drew Schofield's first property sold for 50% more than he paid for it. It was a fabulous return that we got um, and living at it and um, at the time as well, which was really good. The time he opted to buy a car rather than a property that would have over time doubled in value. And my gut said yes at the time, that was a much better idea but all my friends had four-wheel drives and I thought I needed a four-wheel drive as well. His biggest aha moment? A good mate of mine was a real, real estate agent at the time when we decided that we were going to sell our place in Mansfield and he said, have you thought about going to auction? And that's next. I'm Tyrone Shum and you're listening to Property Investory. Schofield growing up was always around property in his hometown. As a result, when he got older, he bought his first property in Queensland, which he sold for an excellent profit. My dad's a builder up in Rockhampton in central Queensland. He's, I mean, he's been a builder since I can remember. I mean, before I was born, he was an owner builder, working for himself, small businessman. He's had a range of, I think he's up to, had up to eight, nine, ten blokes working for him at different stages. Um, so I've always been around property. I can always remember our holidays were. Um, we went to the Gold Coast and places like that. We'd always end up doing the obligatory drive around a display village. So dad would get pick up ideas and new different ways of, um, I guess, designing homes. So I've always been around and around property. And I guess just by happenstance, my wife's father is a real estate valuer. So, and you know, I talk about that for serendipity, maybe, I don't know. Funny coincidence, but... Um, I guess for my, our first, um, I always say our because I can say my, but really, you know, my wife and I do everything together. As a, you know, we're a partnership. Um, you know, we make decisions together. So I guess our first, our first delve into property was was 
pretty good. We bought a, a property in a suburb here in Brisbane called Mansfield. Um, um, we chose to live in that and we did fair fair bit of cosme- uh, cosmetic renovation to it over the years we were there and we sold it for about I think about 50% more than what we paid for it so we did pretty well what kind of uh, time span was that over that was over three and a half years it was a fabulous return that we got um, and living in it and um, at the time as well which was really good um, yeah no that was our I guess my biggest well, not my biggest four-owner property, but certainly my most successful property investing story. I've got a bad one <laughs> as well, if you want to hear it. It's not really bad. It didn't cost well. It was more of an opportunity cost than anything. Okay. Well, let, let's go into that. I'm, I'd love for you to share that story then. My old man still brings up with me every now and then. But when I was 18, so all of Australia went through a bit of a property boom, as you might even you might recall, and certainly your listeners will. Uh, Tyrone in roundabout when I was 18, 19, 20, which was sort of those early 2000s. Properties kind of really leapt. Anyway, there's a, a suburb in Rockhampton called Depot Hill. It's not, and I, I don't want to be derogatory here, it's not a particularly desirable suburb, but you could buy a home and I think still you still can to this day for about 50, 60, 70,000. So, there was an opportunity that I got presented with dad. The dad found this property for me to buy for my very first home. I think it was 60000 for this property in Depot Hill. And he said, you've got two options. You can buy that stupid car that you want to buy for twenty grand, or you can use your twenty grand, and I'll, guarantor, I'll go guarantor and I'll back in. We can buy this property and you'll do, we'll do some stuff to it and you'll do really well out of it. Which way do you reckon I went? I'm not going to guess. <laughs> I bought the stupid car. There was a point in time where I could have sold that property for more than double than what I bought it for. And have done very little to it. So, to this day, that I mean, not that I sort of lived through that experience or whatever you want to call it, but it still pops up with me every every time. But it, it, it did it did teach me two important lessons. One, you've got to make a decision, so you can't sit on the fence. I guess the second thing is you can't hesitate. If your gut says yes, you've got to go with it. And my gut said yes at the time. That was a much better idea. But all my friends had four drives, and I thought I needed a four drive as well. I took the material possession over the investment, which was nev- which is very rarely a good idea, <laughs> I guess. It's all, it's all part of growing up and learning. And, and I guess I think, you know, that, that's why it's an interesting story because it's an opportunity cost. I guess if you had done that, I wonder what path you would have led you down, down the track as well. Well, that's right. I, correct. I might have ended up staying in Rockhampton and, you know, who knows? Who knows? I guess you can't, you can't look back with regrets. So I'm... You've got to look at a bit of a fan of John McGrath, the um, the real estate guru from Sydney, and I've read his book You Inc. a heap of times. And there's one little thing that always jumps out at me in that, and it's find the gift. Every oh, every situation presents you with a gift, and you've got to find the gift. So I've always looked at that, and my gift from that is go with your gut, and that's helped me a lot. Growing up, Schofield always had ambitions to leave school and work for his father. I had sort of harbour ambitions to work for dad, maybe just more just to work with work for dad than maybe, I guess I always, I mean, I certainly always admired my father. I mean, what he's built he, and what, what he built was literally with nothing. I mean, he didn't come from wealth or anything like that. Everything he's got is, you know, through his, his and my mum's hard work. I mean, everything they've got through, just through, you know, back and bone and muscle, I guess, and sinew just working really hard. So 
I used to go to work with my dad a lot from as young as I can remember. I'm, you know, mum and dad tell stories of me going to work with dad when I was, you know, three and four. I can't remember back that far. However, he was discouraged from becoming a builder's apprentice by his parents and was sent to university. Got sort of glimpses of memory, and that I've always, always, I wouldn't say I've always liked it, but there's some, you know, no one likes digging footings and pouring concrete and that kind of stuff, which is all essential in a, you know, any kind of project. But I guess working with timber and putting, putting, you know, bits of timber together and that kind of thing is always appealing. And I guess I've always admired dad because when he finishes something, he can go past that for years and years and years and he can look at that and say, you know, I built that. That's, you know, regardless of how many times people buy, sell, change it, he knows, you know, he's built that property. So that was a big influence on me. Um, and I guess maybe as an ethos or as a, an attitude, maybe more than anything, but I got to a point where I think I was in year 10 and I was probably at a crossroads and I said to mum and dad, I really want to work for dad um, as an apprentice. And they said, no, you're not, your, your grades are too good. Um, not that, you know, you, if you've got bad grades, you do a trade, of course. I mean, that's not what I mean, but they just, they felt that they, neither of them had been further than year 10. No one they knew had been to university other than the professionals probably that they'd used. They looked at my grades and said, well, we, we, we really think you should go on to year 11 and 12 and, and do university and, you know. And then dad said something like, you should become an accountant because you see how much I pay him. <laughs> so, not that that influenced me, but no, I don't know, accounting, I did some, um, yeah, so I sort of said, okay, I'll do that reluctantly then. Um, I guess I did some work experience and I mean the, the actual accounting, the business of accounting and the, the numbers and that kind of stuff hasn't always appealed to me hugely. It's more dealing with people that I enjoy and helping them achieve a result. Uh, yeah, I think that's probably the, the, um, the, the bit I like about it. So it's more of a, probably more the advisory point. Um, not that, you know, I've done lots of accounting and it, it's always good to, you know, make sure your clients are looked after and that they don't pay a dollar more or less tax than they should and all those kind of things. But it's really that sitting down with people and achieving a really good result that they're happy with and they see value in and being that part, being that key person in their business or their particular life or um, life stage or project or whatever it might be. That's the, that's the attraction for me. So I'm glad I went to dad, work with dad so much. I might not be where I am today if I hadn't have experience I think that that comes back down to experience and also seeing what potentially could be because yeah I mean I had a friend very similar to you whose father recommended exactly the same thing and he said look you know rather than labor you know himself out because you get to a certain point in your life and age that you can only do so much manual work that you know you've got to start using because the brains to be able to do it this is said to me one time and I said yeah I, I can can kind of see why I think my parents recommended it for us to do those kind of things as well. I see my dad now, he's similar age to my business partner and, you know, I mean, both, you know, two two men I respect quite highly and, you know, one can keep going and my, my business partner and he could probably be going to well into his 70s if he likes, you know. He always says, provided I'm fit and healthy I'll and the mind's well, I'll keep going and I'm, I hope that he does because he's a credit to the industry. And then I see someone like my father who would love to do more stuff and he's got a hell of a lot more to give, but, you know, he's worked so hard that his body's starting to give out. So it makes it really hard to go and take on the, the, the projects that he would have when he was in his late 30s to mid 40s. 
and even 50s, you know, because he's, you know, he's early 60s now. He just can't do the stuff that he used to do. He's, you know, you can't be a master craftsman and do the things that you did, that you once did. And that must be, must be torturous. For Schofield, letting one of his biggest moments go to auction was both an aha moment and a struggle. When you sell your property, I mean, there's, there's always the option to go to auction. Um, when we, um, a, a good a good mate of mine was a real, real estate agent at the time when we decided that we were going to sell our place in Mansfield and he said, have you thought about going to auction? And I said, look, not in, no, I really don't want to do that. And he sort of really encouraged us to do it. If we hadn't have, I strongly believe we wouldn't have got the price we did because we ended up, ended up the, our place ended up going to a bidding war between three people. And I think we got an extra 30 or 40 or 20 or $30,000 more than what we would have. So, an aha moment, I guess, in the property sense is don't be afraid to go to auction. You never know what result you might get. You might just get a really good one like we did. So, that's, a, I guess, a bit of an aha moment, if, if that's what you mean. If I'll be honest, when the auction was happening, I was in the kitchen with my fingers in my ears. <laughs> I lost control, I think, Tyrone, and I didn't like that. When you work for yourself and you're the master of your own destiny and all of a sudden you're handing you know, a major investment, you know, one of my two biggest investments that I well, one of my, yeah, one of my two biggest investments I had at the time over someone else to, to transact for me, you sort of, um, <laughs> you know, there's a bit of a loss of control there, but um, he was very good. He just said the whole way through, trust the process, Drew, trust the process, trust the process. My wife was all for it, by the way. She was like, this is great. And she's writing every, you know, she was in, in the, in the lounge room writing every, you know, <laughs> and I'm, yeah, pacing in the kitchen like a wimp with fingers in my ears. But So, inspired by Drew Schofield's journey, we'll keep the conversation going in a future episode of Property Investory where we'll discuss his strategy. So, I think we've bought quite well there and we're kind of, we're close to all the, I'm a big believer in you don't always necessarily buy exactly in the suburb you want to be in, maybe buy one one suburb back and make some changes to that property because there'll always be people that can't afford to get into that other suburb. And that's next time in a future episode of Property Investory.